Welcome back, and uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we open your word, we pray for your presence with us, and we pray for your blessings upon us, Lord. Not that we've earned or deserved anything, Lord, but out of your great mercy and your love towards us, we pray that you would do a lot with this next hour of time, that through your word we come to know you better, Lord, to see you more clearly and to love you better. So, Lord, uh, be with us, we pray, and uh, we look forward to what you'll do with us, Lord, through your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, so uh, this is one of my favorite chapters uh, that John writes, uh, chapter 3 of 1 John. And what we're going to see is uh, something that I really like and I think most people appreciate is Christianity is really black and white with what it teaches. Uh, there's not a lot of gray areas where we got to wonder about what is it really trying to say to us. This is one of those chapters that shows us it's pretty clear cut. And therefore, the excuses that people make in their walk when they're not walking obediently, this is going to help shut those down. And why I like that is not because I like shutting people down. I like it because I like when things are, are clear so that we can be guided well, so that uh, I want to know that I know that what I'm doing today is indeed pleasing to God. It's honoring to God. I don't want to go to bed at night wondering, did he really mean that when he taught that or did he mean this? You know, this is going to be one of those, let's, let's, let's cut out the fat and let's get to the, the heart of the matter and let's see um, what a born-again Christian uh, is to live like. So now the question I want to start with is this. How recently have you been like overwhelmed by the love of God? That when you think of God, you become speechless or you become just, uh, you, you feel incapable of really being able to receive in the fullness and the bounty of the love of God. Um, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I know I've gone very long stretches in my life where the love of God was becoming more theoretical to me. Um, we've got to get into those times when the love of God becomes uh, warm and we feel it and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit is unmistakable and it doesn't matter what evidence comes through science or whatever, you go, but I know that I know. And what's, what's in me, that inner witness of the Holy Spirit is unmistakable. Uh, now, thankfully, all the evidence points to our faith being true, but we, we can't rely on that. We have, we have to rely on this love that God has for his children that had him create us, that had him save us and redeem us, be so patient with us over long stretches of time and so forth. And he's there. He's continuously there. He never goes anywhere. And he's uh, a father with open arms. So why I start with that question is because of this. The Apostle John has talked to us um, for two chapters about loving God and not loving the world and making sure that our affections are set in the right direction. And as he considers these things, he breaks out into this in chapter three, verse one. He says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So now he's, he's been talking about being adopted, being a child of God. And as he considers the implications of being a child of God, he realizes what that must mean for this El Shaddai, this God Almighty, 
the creator of the heavens and the earth, that everything you've ever walked upon, ever beheld with your eyes, ever, all the air that you've ever breathed in, all the sunshine that you've ever felt on your face, he has all designed that for your benefit. It's all there because he knew we were coming and he prepared the planet for you and me. Now, Isaiah 45 has a wonderful verse in it. It says that God created the earth to be inhabited. So in other words, look at Mars. Does that look like a place that was intended to be inhabited? It's, it's barren as barren can be. There's no indication there was any attempt for Mars to ever be inhabited. But the earth, I don't care if you look in the sky or in the water or on the land, it's teeming with life and that life is supported by the only oxygen-rich atmosphere we've ever seen in the universe with uh, soil that grows potatoes and trees that grows oranges and, and apples and all these things that seem like it was waiting for us. It's here because we need those things. And, and so the earth was created to be inhabited and inhabited by what? All sorts of life, but certainly what is the, 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 the primary life it was intended for? It's obviously you and me. And, and, and then of all the people of the earth, it's especially intended for those who become the children of God. So John gets overwhelmed here with this idea of being called a child of God. So uh, he says, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us? What, what kind of love is this? What, what, what could possibly account for the fact that this El Shaddai, Almighty God, has such strong affection He's moved by affection. He has an emotion of love that moves him on our behalf that he said, what kind of love is this that he would actually not call us friends because who's closer to you than your friends? Your children. He says, we're called the children of God. Now, with that overwhelming emotion, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 139. In the first six verses, we see something similar where the... Uh, King David says this, O Lord, he's meditating on the things of God. And that's another thing, guys. How do you get this emotion? You've got to spend some time meditating on the things of God. The psalmist will remind themselves of God parting the Red Sea, allowing his people through and not the enemy through, parting the Jordan River. They'll remind themselves of being freed by the 10 plagues in Egypt. And all these rescues that God will do for his people, they the, the psalm writers are constantly reminding the people, remember, 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 God did these things for us. So in Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. What else does he consider? He says, you know my thoughts afar off. What else does he consider? He says, you comprehend my path and my lying down. You know me all the time. You know me all day long. What else does he consider? You're acquainted with all my ways. Now, is there many people in your life you could say this about? You could say this about God. You're acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. That's military language, this hedging in. It's a surrounding like an army does to a city before it captures it. It says, God, you've surrounded me like that, and your hand's upon me. Now, if God was not a good God, this would be horrifying that he's got you and his hand's upon you. But when David considers this, he says this in verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. Now, that's what your translation says. But if you look at the words in italics, David didn't write those, okay? 
he just says this, knowledge too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot it. That's all what he wrote. I cannot it. Okay. The rest had to be filled in just to help it make more sense. So what's going on there? David's experiencing a, a something that happens sometimes to these biblical writers where this tremendous love and emotion comes over them and they their sentences become broken. It's broken speech due to high emotion. It's like somebody won the lottery and they can't quite make a complete sentence. They're just overwhelmed by the moment. It's what happens to these writers sometimes. Okay, it's what happens to David in Psalm 139. And I believe that's what's happening to John in 1 John 3. He just gets overwhelmed. He just interrupts his train of thought and he goes, what kind of love is this? What kind of love would cause him to call me his child? Okay. Now, we need to have those thoughts. We need to slow down and think about those things. We need to reiterate to ourselves what God has declared about each one of us. That is where our mental health will come from. That is where our emotional stability will come from. This is why Jesus Christ is called the rock upon which we stand and upon which we weather our storms. None other can we build this foundation upon. Okay, it's Jesus only. So, it, 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 it's too, so what, what is exciting them so much? Well, I just pulled two sections of scripture that excite me a lot when I read them. And so I just want to share those with you real quick. As you can see in your notes, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. What is so exciting that it caused David that emotion and John that emotion? Paul writes this, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He's saying, okay, so I want, you to, I want it to be revealed to you the knowledge of God. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Okay, so the light comes into your eyes of understanding so you can understand these things being that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Okay, your joy, part of your joy is a knowledge, knowledge of the hope that you have when he's called you to himself. Okay, there's a hope that doesn't disappoint in, in, in God. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So there's this inheritance of not just a king. Imagine if you had the inheritance of a king, but now what if you have the inheritance of the king of all these kings? That's what the hope of your calling, that's, what you're, that's what's set before you in your faithful journey through this life. Those who do this journey faithfully have this, the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. This exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Listen, exceeding greatness. Greatness would have been good enough for me. But Paul says, no, it exceeds that. It's beyond this greatness because it's God. This is God and his power. And this is the one that John is saying, and he calls us his children. Who do you fight for more than your children? Who's on your mind more than your children? Okay, so God is putting in this, in this category of, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we're together. And even if that means I have to die. And of course, that's what the story is. Now, what else gets me excited about this? It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, starting at verse 1. 
Paul is kind of dealing with a dilemma where people are challenging his apostleship because they know he wasn't one of the 12 that walked with Jesus for three years. So they challenge his apostleship. So he has to defend himself. And that's what he's doing in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, now this is, of course, he's talking about himself, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up into the third heaven. So they considered the atmosphere that we breathe the first heaven. They considered outer space to be the second heaven. And they considered where God dwells to be the third heaven. He says, I was caught up to that third heaven. I saw God's throne room. I saw where our eternity is going to be spent. He says, I was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, inexpressible words. Now, the very idea of a word being a word is that it's expressible. A word is not a word if it's not something expressible. He says, no, these words are inexpressible. And what that deep meaning means to me is this. The English language has a ton of words. Spanish language has a ton of words. The Greek language has a ton of words. Human language has a ton of words. And none of them express the exceeding greatness of heaven. There's not a word on our planet ever uttered by a human that accurately expresses the greatness, the exceeding greatness of what's in store for you and I, the children of God. This is part of the overwhelming understanding John has of what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you and me, that we would be called his children. Children are the one that get the inheritance, correct? You can hear your children yelling amen in the background right now. Okay, they're the ones that get the inheritance. Now, um, he says, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I'll speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone think of me above what he sees or hears from me. Now, I'm not going to continue reading, but what he goes on to say is this. The things that I know about our inheritance and in God and the exceeding greatness of it, as a human being, I would become very prideful and boastful for what I know. So what does God have to do to make sure Paul doesn't lose his purity through pride? He gives him that famous thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him day and night just to keep him humble. Imagine if he has to send a messenger of Satan to you to torment you day and night just because of what you know would make you so exceedingly prideful and boastful because of how great it is, all right? So it's the only thing Paul begged God to take away from him was this thorn in the flesh. And, you know, Paul got 39 lashes on five occasions. He got beaten with rods three times. He was in prison more than all the other apostles. And he doesn't record any complaining about that, but he complains about this thorn in the flesh. Begs God three times to take it away, and God says no every time. Why? What's more important than relief from his suffering? It's a simple fact of God saying, you of all people, Paul, who are going to be my messenger to the rest of the world, need to know that in that type of suffering, my grace is sufficient for you. He had to know that firsthand. He had to know that experientially. Why? Because he needs to tell the rest of the world from his experience that if you're going to get the 39 lashes five times, unjustly imprisoned on many occasions, if you're going to get beaten up just because you love Jesus Christ, you need to know this. The grace that will be given to you is greater than the suffering you'll endure. 
We see that through the martyrs throughout the centuries. We've had martyrs lit on fire, and as they're dying, lit on fire, they're heard singing psalms and hymns to the Lord. There's a grace that exceeds the suffering. That's something we need to be open to in our suffering, is God is indeed always offering his children grace during that suffering. Now, so he says, what love, now we're talking about the overwhelming emotion, the overwhelming joy, and uh, what about the love, the, the love that the Father's bestowed upon us? Well, let's just do a couple verses so we can identify what manner of love this is. What manner of love is it? John asks, well, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated this love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so even in our rejection and rebellion, he didn't find us so appalling that he turned his back. He still went to the cross. He went for the cro to the cross for his killers, who he kept saying over and over again, Father, forgive them. That verb forgive is in the future perfect tense, which means he was always saying, Father, forgive them. Throughout all of that suffering, he's constantly saying, Father, forgive them. Um, so while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How about John 15, 13? Greater love is no man than this than to lay one's life down for his friends. Now he doesn't just talk that talk, does he? He walks that walk and he lays down his life for his friends. And the verse right before it, he says this, love one another as I have loved you. Can you imagine that the next verse was lay down your life for him? That's how I'm loving you is I'm gonna lay down my life for you. And that's the example you should follow. Now, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that he would lay down his life for us, as he calls us, not just his friends, but we learn that he calls us his children. All right, so how are we children of God? Well, we're not Jewish, unless you're Jewish, then you're Jewish, but I'm not Jewish, and probably most of you aren't Jewish, we're Gentiles, and so how are we children of this Jewish God? Well, we learn in Ephesians it's through adoption. Now, here's what I love about adoption. One of the worst phrases you'll ever hear on, the, on this side of heaven is the two words, unwanted pregnancy, right? A pregnancy that's actually unwanted. You've probably never heard that term with adoption, have you? There's no such thing as an unwanted adoption. All adoptions are greatly desired, hotly pursued, with great amount of anticipation and love, and a super overabundance of happiness when that family actually adopts that child. That is what God has done to us Gentiles. He's adopted us into his family. Romans chapter four will actually say that you're actually a child of Abraham if you simply have the same faith as Abraham. If you believe in God the way Abraham did, then you become a child of God. You become the offspring of Abraham. So this great love includes adoption. Now, Verse two, now we're still in verse one. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So what's the impact of this love? He just talked about this incredible love that God has for us. And what's the impact of that love? It says it makes you unrecognizable. It makes us unrecognizable to the rest of the world. Our identity so changes from the world that the world doesn't even recognize us anymore because of what happened to us through God's love. Because they don't know him, and now you are in him, now the world does not know you as well. Now, of course, 
they know you by name and things like this, but they should say they're not the same. They're not the same since they started going to church and they started reading their Bible and all this stuff. They are just not the same person I know. And hopefully they're saying that in a way of you've gotten better. But the world doesn't know him. You're his child. Therefore, the world doesn't know you. Uh, verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now, I get asked this question multiple times every school year from students. What are we gonna be like in heaven? In fact, today, somebody asked me, if babies die, are they babies in heaven? You know, type of thing. Or isn't it better to die at 25 when you have a you know, good, healthy body and you have that body in heaven and all that stuff? No. Listen, it hasn't been revealed what we shall be. That's what it just said here, right? So I can't really say what we will be exactly like except for what John tells us, which is this. We'll be like him. Somehow, some way, we'll be like him, the glorified Christ in our, in our glorified state. Uh, we, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, what happens, I gave you this word hope, and now I'm giving, I, I gave you this word love, and now this idea of what we'll be like in heaven, all we know is we'll be like him, and now what, do you, what, what happens to your hope what does your hope do to you when you have this hope? Well, verse three says, you start purifying yourself. It's like now you know who you are, where you're going, and sort of what it'll be like. And because he is pure, you start purifying yourself. In other words, what do you love to do now that you didn't love to do before you came to Christ? Or what do you so don't wanna do now that you so did want to do before you came to Christ. Those are marks of your being purified. You don't want to do the same things. You, you don't, you're not attracted to the same uh, temptations and joys and so forth because you joined a different family. And we're going to start getting to the very black and white aspect of you joining this family. When I said there's not a lot of gray area here, you're going to see that coming uh, here now. So we don't know what we'll be like, we'll just know we'll be like him. And I gave you in your notes, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, where Paul again says this, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So we don't know the body that he's prepared for us. We don't know the, what the place will be like. When we go through Revelation, you'll see the descriptions of Revelation. It uses the word like a lot, like streets of gold or pure gold. And I think that means it's not pure gold because pure gold's not like pure gold. Pure gold is pure gold. But I think it's simply saying this, your most valuable asset on earth, pure gold, is just our pavement up there. That's the big difference between heaven and earth. So what you use as asphalt, we use pure gold in that same manner. It's just common and everywhere all the time type of thing. So that'll be cool. Now, um, so we purify ourselves because we become a part of God's family and he is pure. So we want to resemble our father in purity. So we purify ourselves because we have that hope in us. Moving on to four. Abrupt change in the feel of, the, of this chapter. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. 
And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So if you're going to join this family of his, and that hope creates in you a desire to purify yourself, then it becomes a little bit concerning if you decide to keep on sinning. Now, something I need to say right now that you got to kind of carry this thought with you through the rest of the chapter. At times, the Bible will say, if you sin, you're of the devil. And you're like, oh my gosh, look what I just did today. And the Bible just said, I'm of the devil. And sometimes they'll say, hey, if you sin, then confess and you're forgiven. So you're like, well, which one is it? If I sin, I'm forgiven. Or if I sin, I'm of the devil. Which one is it? Well, this is where English fails us. And it, and it doesn't fail them in the Greek language. Because in the Greek language, there's different tenses to this verb sin. And whenever it talks about if you sin, you're of the devil, the verb sin there is in what we call the future perfect tense, which should be translated, and some versions do do this, I think the NIV happens to be one of them, where it says if you continue to sin, or if you keep on sinning, or if you have a habit of sinning, then you're of, of the devil. But 1 John 1, 9 is not in the future perfect, it's simply in the past tense. It says if you sin, then confess your sin, and you'll be forgiven of your sin, okay? Because none of us are going to go from today till the day of our death without sinning, correct? None of us are gonna do that. Not you, not me, not anybody. So we're not to think that that disqualifies us from all these promises of God. What will disqualify you is this. This is what I want you to check when you sin. It's not necessarily the sin that I want you to pay attention to to see if you're of God or not. It's your reaction to your sin. Is there regret? Is there confession? Is there repentance? Or are you just very comfortable in it? And if you're very comfortable, then let me warn you now that is not a good sign of the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit, I think, cannot be comfortable with sin. So your reaction to sin is more indicative of your spiritual state than the sin itself is. We're all gonna sin, but we're all offered. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, he died for these sins, and if your heart is regretful and desires to do better, that's the Christian journey, and you'll be given strength to do better over time. If you're careless about it and, and you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there's some very scary verses in here for you, and some of them are upcoming, so hold on to your chair. All right, so he says, if whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and a sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So the idea is this. Understand the love that God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that one that we're the child of has no sin. And you are made a part of his family. There should be family resemblance in that you as a sinner no longer desire to do the sinning anymore. There's a desire to not sin in you now. And in him there is no sin. By the way, this is the clarity of the Christian walk that the unbelieving world is looking for. Do you know that? What confuses the unbelieving world probably more than anything is that they don't see a huge difference in sin between them and the Christian. Okay? So one of the things that's going to mark us apart in an evangelical way that'll draw people out of darkness into light is if we're truly walking in light. And that's the purity. So the brighter the light, our light shines, the more darkness gets shed by our, by our light, okay? So whoever abides in him does not sin. There's your future perfect tense, does not continue in sin. 
does not have patterns of sin, does not make excuses for their sin. Whoever sins has neither him, has neither seen him nor knows him. Now, the opposite of purity that we were called to is lawlessness. The opposite of purity is lawlessness or sin. Lawlessness is godlessness because our fellowship with God is seen through our obedience. Remember, Jesus said the way to know who are his is through their fruit. Your fruit is born through obedience to God. So the opposite of this obedience that bears fruit is lawlessness, is sin. Now, one of the worst forms of lawlessness that I see in today's society is autonomy, self-law, self-rule, uh, that you're in charge of your life, that you bow a knee to nobody type of thing. You're carving out your path and your favorite song is I did it my way, okay? So autonomy, self-law, self-rule is sin since it's not conformity to God's law. You're putting yourself in the place of the lawgiver, which is God. All right, verse seven. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. See the black and white? Who practices righteousness is righteous, and just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So if Jesus was manifested, took the stripes, took the beatings, took the cross, and he did that to destroy the works of the devil, then when we behave like the devil, it's very offensive to him. It'd be very offensive to him that you're performing the very things that he came to destroy, that you're joining his enemy in your behavior. So very, very black and white. He who sins continuously is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Think of John 1, John's Gospel, first chapter. Uh, the word became flesh. Think of chapter one of this letter, where it says, that which we have seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, and that life was manifested. That life was made physical for us, to see and behold ourselves, to touch, to hear from, to see. It's made manifested, why? To destroy the works of the devil. So what participation should the children of God have with the works of the devil? As little as possible, my goodness as little, as little as possible. And this is a battle, isn't it? It's a fight. Because nobody would ever catch a fish if they didn't put bait on the hook, right? And that bait makes the fish see the object of their impending death look really good. And that's what Satan does with sin. He makes the objects of your impending death look really good to you, okay? Makes it a lot of fun. If he didn't make it fun, then who would ever sin, okay? So he's, he's baiting the hook through temptation and sin, because he wants you dead. He wants you his child, not God's child. So Jesus was manifested to destroy, destroy the works of the devil. Let them be destroyed in all of our lives. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Future perfect tense, does not go on sinning, continuously sinning. Why? For God's seed remains in him. You see how you're born of God? It says literally his seed remains in you, why? He's your father. Fathers can't have children apart from their seed. So now it's saying you're a child of God. Why? His seed is in you. 
and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. All right. Now, how do you know when you come across a tree, if it's an apple tree that you're coming across, how do you know it's an apple tree? By its fruit. Come across an orange tree, how do you know it's an orange tree? By its fruit. Come across a Christian, how do you know they're a Christian? By their fruit, okay? Bad trees cannot bear good fruit. Good trees cannot bear bad fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. You will know who are Jesus's by their fruit that they bear, okay? So that's why I don't believe in the term carnal Christianity. You're known by your fruit. If you're carnal, then you're not Christian, okay? If you're Christian, then you're not carnal. Um, nobody's perfect, nobody's perfect, so it's not the sin that's indicating who you are, it's your reaction to the sin that's much more indicative of who your father is. And it would sound extreme if I just didn't read it from John himself, but it's indicating who your father is. It's either God or the devil. All right, now, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In what? And what are the children of God manifest and the children of the devil manifest? Uh, it's in their behavior regarding sin. Okay, the one that goes on and keeps sinning is, is of the, the child of the devil. The one who fights against their sin, repents of their sin, is a child of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So it gets a little more specific now. We're back to this word love. One of the fruits of the authentically saved, heaven-bound Christian is loving of the brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Child of a devil, child of God, they will not recognize you when you are a child of God. It says the world does not recognize them. And so what did Cain see instead of his flesh and blood brother? He saw through his evil deeds that his brother somehow deserved to be murdered, okay? So um, he says in 13, do not marvel my brethren if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, you can see in the notes, I wrote, Christianity is made up of transformed people who have exited a life of darkness that have entered into light. There is no mistaking this process. It is an obvious one. It's a difference between light and darkness, flesh and spirit, clean and unclean, pure and impure. It's a difference between a Cain and an Abel and a Jacob and an Esau. Here, John says it's a difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. Now, again, none of us can conquer sin this side of heaven, but the question is, who is your master? Who is your master? We are all serving someone or we're all serving something, even if it's just ourselves that we're serving. We are bond servants of either things of the flesh, we are bond servants of things of the spirit. I refer you to Romans chapter one, where Paul 
writing his most important letter because he's writing to the capital of planet Earth in his day, Rome itself. And if he can win Rome over, then he's going to have access to the whole Gentile world for Christ. So this is his most important letter. He has not yet been to Rome when he writes this letter. He sends this letter ahead so that when he gets there, they'll already have an idea of the gospel. So how does he start this most important letter? This is the most global letter that he writes. This is the most theological from A to Z um, that he writes. And here's how he starts it. He says, Paul, I'm Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He says, I have a master and I am his slave. I am his servant and more so I am his bondservant. Now, why would anybody ever brag about being a bondservant? Well, here's the thing. You and I are bondservants of someone or something, even if it's just of ourselves. Those who claim the most freedom, like I don't listen to nobody, I'm my own boss. Well, you're autonomous, you're self-law, you're against God because you're not supposed to be autonomous. You're supposed to abide like a branch in the vine abides and that's where it gets its fruitfulness from. So the last thing you wanna be is apart from that vine. You wanna be a bond servant to Jesus Christ. Now, first century Jews considered Moses to be their greatest hero, their greatest person. He freed them from slavery, uh, talked to God face to face, all of these wonderful things. Moses was their main guy. And when he died, and God is now communicating to Joshua, and he's telling Joshua, Moses did great, he got you this far, but you're, he's not crossing the Jordan River. You're gonna bring him across the Jordan into the promised land, not Moses. The very first thing God says to Joshua, that Joshua has to hear so that he can do this huge responsibility correctly, God says to him, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, he says, now therefore arise. In other words, I need Joshua to arise and be Joshua. And when you can't do, when you arise, Joshua, is try to wear a bracelet that says, what would Moses do? You're not to follow what Moses would do. You're to be Joshua. Now, how does God eulogize the greatest uh, Jewish hero of the entire Old Testament? He says, Moses, and here's his eulogy, my servant. And I would say that's the highest compliment he could have given Moses. What could he have said to give more honor to Moses than he was my servant? Because again, he's gonna be a servant to something or to someone. So what is the object of his servanthood? God said it was me. He served me his entire life. I couldn't think of a more glorious thing to be on your tombstone or mine than the servant of the Lord. Where we pursue promotions and titles and, and royalty and kingship and things like that, the only thing higher than all of that is the servanthood to the Lord. It's the greatest thing you could ever come to achieve is that your bond servanthood was to none other than to Jesus Christ. It's Paul's biggest boast. It should be your biggest boast. It should be my biggest boast. Now, back to 1 John. Verse 16. 
By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And remember, John was one of the 12 that was there when Jesus said, there is no greater love than that, right? Than to lay down your life for your friends. And now he says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? First thing I want to say about these verses is this. He says, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, when the, the apostles or Paul talks about the brethren, he means fellow believers. And what I want to say is this. Jesus Christ has a higher call than that. Jesus Christ calls us to more than just loving our brethren, doesn't he? Jesus Christ gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he says a, a Jewish man is traveling to Jerusalem and he gets beaten by robbers to the point of death. And as he's laying dying in the streets, a priest walks by, which should make everybody go, Thank goodness for that priest, because surely the priest will help him. And Jesus said that priest crossed over on the other side of the street. He says, but then a Levite came by. Okay, it's not a priest, but he's of the priestly tribe. Surely this one will help. But he likewise passed by on the other side. And as you start getting that the expected ones are not the ones helping, and you anticipate that it's going to be the most unlikely of people to be the hero, the Jews of Jesus' day we're probably tempted to stop Jesus right there and say, Jesus, you can put whatever hero you want coming along to save this guy. Just don't make it a Samaritan. We despise Samaritans. Anybody but a Samaritan. Anybody at all but a Samaritan, because that's the one that's going to be hardest for us to swallow down, that our priests and our Levites would not help this man, but you're saying a Samaritan is going to come along? So Jesus continues the story, and he says, and along came a Samaritan. And he not only cared for the man in the street, but put him on his animal, brought him to an inn, paid the night's wages for his care, and promised that upon his return, if they had to spend more and did spend more, he'd even pay him that extra that, that, that they would spend. And the question that Jesus was answering with this parable was this. Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself. And somebody said, well, then who's my neighbor? And Jesus then shockingly says, even the Samaritan is your neighbor, that you're to love as yourself. Now, who is your Samaritan is my question. Who is the one that you would say, that's the last person I would ever want to be associated with, I would ever help, I'd ever lay down my life for? Listen, in, in Luke's gospel, I thought I wrote it down, I don't see it now. Oh, there it is. In Luke chapter six, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but this is the time for me to say it. In Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, Jesus says this. But I say to you who hear, love your, doesn't say brethren there, does it? It says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. You guys saw La Miserelle, right? Les Miserelles. What changed the heart of that man? 
Well, when he, when, he, when he knocked the priest over the head and stole all his silver and tried to run, then he got caught and was brought back with a bag full of silver. What did the priest do? Instead of saying, I can't believe you took my silver and all this, he gave him the candlesticks as well saying, hey, you forgot these, man. He gave his tunic as well, didn't he? And that changed that man's heart right there. So why are you to love your enemies? Listen, it's not so that you're soft and weak and you let people walk all over you. That is not what you're called to. What you are called to is the power of transformation, that your love and unexpected grace towards your enemies will make them your friends. That is the heart of Jesus Christ. Give to everyone who asks of you and from him who takes away your goods and do not ask for them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. I love this next section. But if you love those who love you, so if you think it's just love your brethren and love those who love you, here's what Jesus says. What credit is that to you? How will we translate, translate that into simpler English, the way we speak? He would say this, if you love those who love you, so what? Or big, fat, hairy deal. You can look at any crummy person on the earth and they love those who love them. So who are you to, to think something of yourself because you can love those who love you? That is not from the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's not the strength that comes from following Jesus Christ, from being made a child of God. So he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend. Listen, hoping for nothing in return. Can you imagine that? You lend your money and you hope you never see it again. Okay? Now, there's so many things in this Bible that I teach and then I have to go, oh my gosh, I don't do that. I can honestly say this. I've lent money and hope not to get it back. And um, it's freeing. It really is to not be like the world. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough just to do this stuff? You'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. He is kind to them. So why shouldn't we be? Therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful. All right. So it's not just love of the brethren, as John puts out there for you, but it's the hardest. It's your Samaritan. Who's your Samaritan that you're called to love as your brother? That is what's going to transform the world. That is the witness that will bring people out of darkness into light. That is what we are called to. All right, First John, let's wrap this up. Okay, so verse uh, 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Listen, there's First John 3 in a nutshell. You want the whole chapter in one verse? It's right there in verse 18. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Okay, don't tell me you love me, show me you love me. Okay, and that'll probably make a hit song one day. All right. Um, it's, it's about the action. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Okay, so now I have one student who got saved right before Christmas 
just got baptized over Christmas break, but he keeps texting me and he keeps talking to me about how do I know that it's real? How do I know I'm actually saved? How do I know these things? And he says that out of one side of his mouth and on the other side of his mouth, he's, I want some service opportunities. Can you find some things for me to do to people in need? He's brilliant. He's probably going to be our next valedictorian of our school. And he says, I, I want to tutor kids that just don't get it somewhere. I want to go to other schools and just tutor, tutor, tutor. I want to use my gifts for the benefit of others. And this is what I'm showing them right here. He says, by this we know that we're of the truth. How? And this is what will assure our hearts before him. What? If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, what he's saying is this. If you're loving in work, if you're loving in deed and in truth, then your heart's assured before him that you're saved. So in other words, if there's actions to back up your claims for love, if there's actions to back up the fact that you're saying the love the father bestowed upon me that he calls me his own kid, if that love is true and authentic, then here's what will assure your heart. You love in deed and in truth. Your hands and your feet are showing your love, not just your mouth, talking your love. So, so if your heart condemns you, God is greater than our heart, knows all things, but if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So if you're loving in action and in deed and in truth, then your heart won't, will not uh, condemn you and you'll have confidence toward God. And you'll no longer have to ask, am I really saved? Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. There's another role of obedience, okay? You do yourself a huge, huge blessing to your heart is every time you read your Bible, you come across any call to obedience, underline it, underline it. Because we always talk about being saved and we always talk about what God has done. But remember, here's what God has done. He's given us his word. And in his word, what does he said? Say, he says, your, your, your works is not a part of your salvation, but it's the absolute sign that will always accompany your salvation. So how does the outward, outward world know about your inward condition of salvation? It's the works. The works become the fruit that the people can see. It's what brings them towards God, okay? And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, how does this work with the works and the, and the salvation? Now, I'm not gonna bring you to the easy verses like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, Flat out says you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, so nobody can boast. But verse 10 says, but you are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So he's prepared these works for you to do as a saved Christian. They gotta be a part of your Christian walk. Now that one's pretty obvious to me, but the one that people struggle over is James 2. James 2, 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. People wrongly understand that to say salvation is a part of your, I'm sorry, works are a part of your salvation. That is not what James is teaching. James is teaching in this context the unmistakable presence of works with true salvation. So much so that he can say, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's how I'm going to show you my faith, by my works. In Mark chapter 2, these friends of a paralyzed man pick him up on a mat, try to bring him to a house that Jesus is teaching it in because they know Jesus can heal him. But they can't get near the house because of the crowd. 
So they climb up on the roof with the guy, dig through the roof and lower him to Jesus' feet. And the Bible says this, Jesus saw their faith. Okay, they, he saw it. How did he see their faith? Through their works. He saw the works that they were doing. They were doing works that the only explanation for those works was that they believed Jesus could actually heal them. So, so your faith is visible through your works. And if you don't have works, then how does anybody know you have faith, including you? These, they're inseparable, okay? So if you read through that James passage, hopefully you can see it uh, where James will say, even the demons believe and they shudder. So he's saying they have faith, but it's not the faith that brings good works. They actually have evil works accompanying their faith. They're not saved. So you need to have better faith than a demon. And how do you have better faith than a demon? Your works are good, they're fruitful. They're loving your brother, they're loving your enemy, they're doing the things that Jesus commands us to do. Our obedience is the outward sign of the inward reality of salvation. All right. I think I told you last time I was wrapping up, but I sinned, I lied. Okay, now I'm gonna wrap up. All right. Okay, so... Well, verse 23 says, and this is his commandment. What's his commandment? That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So there's the command to love again, but why does he start it with believing in Jesus Christ first? First, he's, so, so we, he's repeating this idea to love, to love, to love, to love, to love. But now he says, but here's his commandment. Believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and then love one another. Why? Because once again, even sinners love one another. So how do we know the difference between this love? Listen, he says, start with believing in Jesus Christ because the difference between the sinners loving one another and the believer loving other believers is the believer also, because he acknowledges the name of Jesus Christ, is going to love his enemy, isn't he? Isn't she? Gonna love the enemy, pray for the enemy with the hope of one day the enemy becoming what? your friend. That is the transformation that this Bible is showing us time and time again. Christianity is all about transformation. What does Paul say in Romans 12? Do not be conformed to the patterns of these worlds. Why? Because there's no transformation in it. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. So the old mind's gotta go. You gotta get the new mind going. The mind that has power, the power of transformation to bring people out of darkness into light, out of impurity into purity, out of uncleanness into cleanness, out of the flesh into the spirit, out of the child of the devil into a child of God, out of, the, out of hell into heaven. That's a transformational power of this gospel of Jesus Christ. And he finishes the chapter by saying, now he who keeps his commandments if you remember what I said five minutes ago, you're underlying there's a call to obedience, right? To keep his commandments. Abides in him. So now you're the branch and he's the vine. And he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. How do you know that Jesus Christ abides in you? He says, by the spirit that I gave you. And that becomes the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And I never want to disregard as somebody who teaches apologetics and talks to atheists and tries to convince them and all that, 
What I never want to do is just rely on the science and just rely on the history and just rely on the archaeology and all that stuff. What I want to rely on is this. And this is why I love, I wrote William Lane Craig down there because I want you to watch his debates. When he debates serious atheists, he'll give all these scientific reasons why God has to exist, but he'll always have his last point be this. I have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And his opponent will always say, that's no evidence. How do I know you have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit? How does anybody know you have it? He says, Christians know what I'm talking about right now. We all have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit that when you're presented the scriptures, there's something in you going yes and amen. If they're presented to you truthfully and honestly and transparently with proper exegesis and, and, and faithfully presented to you, there's something in you yesing and amening that. That's the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit saying, that's, that I authored that book, and now you're hearing the words of that taught in a way that's truthful, and you're gonna get that inner witness. I believe if I taught them in a deceiving way, you guys would feel rather disgusted, and that'd be the last I'd see of you. You'd have that inner witness of going, that ain't my word. That is not what you should be listening to, okay? So we have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit that when you look at creation, there's something about you that says, God, this is beautiful. Okay, not randomness, this is really beautiful, but God, this is really beautiful. That inner witness of the Holy Spirit, never neglect that you have that. Never be ashamed to tell others, I know because it's been revealed to me. Truth has been revealed to me. Things that I didn't once believe, I believe. Things I didn't once understand, I'm now understanding. I see the world differently. I have this inner testimony that Christ abides in me. And the, and the unbelieving world needs the boldness of the Christian saying it is indeed true. Because we can't all be crazy, right? Maybe just you or me, but not all of us together. If we all say we have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit. It's going to speak boldly to the unbelieving world. Amen? Enough. Okay, so let's pray and and see um, if you guys have any uh, last minute questions and uh, we'll call it a night. Let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, uh, I probably didn't teach it perfectly, of course, but whatever you are pleased with, we pray that you would just uh, put that in our hearts and teach it to us in a way that we can carry it forward, Lord, into our tomorrow and all of our tomorrows so that we're a little bit brighter of a light and we're a little bit more effective at quenching darkness. Lord, that you would be pleased with us, that you would say well done to us, Lord, and that we would feel your pleasure about us in our hearts, Lord. And may that always be our motivation is your pleasure, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Bless them, Lord, I pray. And I thank you uh, for their attendance uh, each and every Wednesday. In Jesus' name, amen. You were reading part of the Bible, and some of the uh, scripture was in italics. And the question was, when I see italics and I see those notes, how should I treat that when I read the Bible? Yeah, so it should always, always be that if something's in italics, then it has a little A by it or a one by it, and it's referring you to a note on that page telling you that this is not in um, either the particular group of manuscripts that they're pulling from, or it's not in any of the manuscripts that they're pulling from, but it was just the translators inserting those italicized words because it makes for better English, makes it more understandable in English. Just want you to know it's not a part of the original writing. The question that came in 
Uh, earlier you were referencing uh, most people in the group would probably not be Jewish. But we did have someone write in and said they are Jewish, Jewish, uh, but they believe they didn't become a child of God until they believed in Jesus, and that's due to John 1.12. Um, just wanted to confirm that with you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's a New Testament truth. The Old Testament, it was, you know, the descendants of Abraham. But now we're told in Romans chapter 4 that you become a descendant of Abraham through uh, believing God, just like Abraham did. So, uh, so, so, yes, so we're brought in through faith to be a child of Abraham. That's Jew or Gentile. So, so what the New Testament teaches us is that your physical genealogy no longer is the determinant of Abraham being your father. It's if you have the same faith as Abraham that makes you in that line, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. We had a question that came in when you were referencing uh, the thorn in Paul's side um, in 2 Corinthians 12. Is that a mental or physical affliction, or is it something else? One of those three, for sure. Um, I think, I personally think it's an eye injury that he received when he was blinded on the road to Damascus because there's a few signs in the New Testament that he suffered uh, with his eyes a lot. One of them is that when he, I think he's talking to the Galatian church where he, um, he talks about their love for him and their care for him. And he says, I know you would have even a plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. Now, if you don't have an eye issue, that's a really grotesque thing to say to somebody. You love me so much, I know you'd pluck out your own eyes and give them to me if you, if you could. So I think it was known that he was suffering with this eye element and they would gladly give him their eyes if they could. And uh, of course, being blinded like he was could cause that. And then we also have in other letters where um, when Paul's being emphatic about something, see, Paul used an amanuensis for his writings. And most of what the New Testament letters are, he didn't pen them himself. He had a scribe penning them as he spoke the letters. But when he's being emphatic about something, sometimes he'll say, I'm writing this with my own hand. And here's how he proved that he was writing with his own hand. He'll say, see what big letters I'm using. So to him, that was the identifying mark that he was writing it. Now, why does somebody write with large letters that are unusually large? Usually because they can't see well. So just like if people are hard of hearing, they'll speak louder because they want to hear themselves speaking. People that are trouble seeing will write larger so they can see what they're writing. So, um, so I would say that if I had to guess, I would say his thorn in the flesh was suffering with this eye problem throughout his life. Next question reads, where does quenching the spirit come into play with continuous sin in a believer? You can't quench it if you've never had it, correct? Yeah, say the first part of that question again. Sure. Where does quenching the Spirit come into play with continuous sin in a believer? Okay. Um, it's a fascinating way to word the question because I question it being a believer if they're able to be in continuous sin. I think there needs to be some reaction where they're trying to avoid it being continuous. But um, quenching the Spirit, the Spirit is what comes upon you in power, right? The Spirit is how you can get results in your life that you, you know you can't take credit for. You know, it's, it's uh, God doing the work through his spirit. So when you quench that spirit, you're losing that witness of uh, operating in the spiritual gifts. 
So if you're quenching the spirit, then um, you would do that through sitting for sure. But um, I personally don't put the terms continuous, a believer who's continuously sinning, unless it's a story of them waking up and repenting type of thing. But um, um, so I, you are quenching this, any, any sin quenches the spirit. You know, even the one-time sin quenches the spirit at some level. There's separation that happens between you and your sin and God because that's why he's not in the garden with Adam and Eve anymore. It's because of sin. And that's part of why we purify ourselves when we're born again because uh, sin separates us. And so we want to be close to him as possible through our purity. So if the question is, how does quenching the spirit relate to continuous sin in the believer? Well, certainly they go hand in hand. Um, and, uh, when, when people tell me that their spiritual lives are drying up, they feel like their prayers aren't being heard. They don't enjoy the Bible anymore. Why are they going through this? It's always my first question. Can you identify sin in your life? Can you identify something that you're comfortable with that you know shouldn't be in your life? That is the number one reason for the quenching of the spirit is sin. So there needs to be repentance, uh, in that sin. So, um, I am really not sure if I've answered the question or even understood the question. So tell them to feel free to clarify more if I didn't address it the way they wanted. But um, that would be my answer to how I understood the question anyway. We have another question here that reads, do you feel that the church has fallen behind in church discipline? Uh, yes. Um, I'm a part, obviously, of a really big church, so I think there's a lot of need of church discipline that never gets uh, to the church's attention just because of the sheer number of people at the church. But even in smaller churches, I think um, the desire to grow a church makes a lot of pastors hesitant to discipline the congregation, uh, fear of losing them. See, the problem is this. When church discipline happens in South Florida, that person that's disciplined just goes to another church. And um, so the discipline doesn't really happen. The discipline is, is mainly supposed to be withholding the Lord's Supper from them. Now, that is supposed to create great fear in any believer that you're not welcome to the Lord's table. And yet we can't keep track of that very well because the only way to keep track of who's being disciplined and the Lord's Supper is being withheld from them is if the church is small enough that you can pay attention to it. And, um, and then this, it'll be pretty well known that person that normally takes communion is not taking communion. I wonder what the sin is in their life. And that prevents a lot of people from doing discipline because it becomes kind of publicly known. So there's a lot of reasons why it's not happening. But uh, in the Protestant faith, one of the identifying markers of a true church is church discipline. So, you know, for the traditional understanding of being a true church, there has to be church discipline. Now, I can, I can tell you that um, I've been in many, many uncomfortable meetings with, with uncomfortable situations with, with people who we are. Uh, we don't withhold communion. We can tell them to withhold communion, but we can't keep track of it. There's no way to keep track of that. Where they're sitting, what service they're at, and all of, the, all of that, but we do have told people not to continue to come anymore. And that's a very, very last resort type of discipline, but it's happened 
I'm sure a dozen times that I've been a part of and many more times than that. But you just, but if they just go to another church and that pastor doesn't follow through on that same church discipline, then there's no discipline really happening. Uh, it needs to, the discipline is designed to bring the person to repentance. It's what happens in 1 Corinthians when Paul says, kick out the immoral brother. And he says, so that Satan can burn his flesh. And it's not saying so that the guy goes to hell. It's saying when he gets a taste of being apart from the church, it should drive him back to the church through repentance. It's, a, it's the best chance for repentance to happen. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul's telling that same church, you need to bring that brother back in. So obviously it worked for that guy. So um, that's how it's supposed to work. But it, can, can you imagine how hard that is to do today um, with all the churches and people just jumping churches whenever they want to and some churches getting so big that you just really don't know what's going on in a lot of the lives of the congregation. And um, it's just a very difficult thing. But it's a very important thing because, again, we're children of God. And Hebrews 12 says, if you're not disciplined by God, you're not a, you're not a legitimate child of his. So God will use his church to discipline his children and that needs to be happening in the church. And I think the question just was, do I think it's going down? And the answer is, yeah, I do. Well, staying along the same vein of church discipline, the next question is, if you know or hear or see of someone who calls themselves a Christian doing things that are sinful, would you or other church leaders confront that person? I have always prayed to be cared for enough by the church to be confronted. Yes, and if they want to type in their sin, we can do that right now if they like. But, um, but um, yeah, the Matthew 18 principle is divinely given to us from Jesus to do, not only to confront sinners, but to do it in a way that has our decisions that are made upon that sinner match what heaven's already decided on them. And that's why Matthew 18 principle is so important to do. So, uh, you conf it's the first thing Jesus says, confront your brother that's in a sin with the hope of winning him over through that confrontation. If you don't win him over, bring two or three more witnesses with you that agree with you because the Old Testament, God taught us every matter is confirmed by two or three witnesses. So bring those two or three witnesses with you that agree with you and know that the person's in sin. And if that doesn't win them back, then you're to tell it to the church. Now here's what Jesus assumes about the church that is not so true today that needs to become more and more true. And that is the authority that the church has. The church has tremendous authority over people's lives and people don't like hearing that, but the church is God's uh, instrument of shepherding his people. So Paul will say, you shouldn't even be found in a court of law if you're a Christian. You need to bring all those law matters to the church because how he would say, how dare you trust a judge who may not be in the faith when you have so many brothers and sisters in the faith that can decide the matters in spiritual ways that depend on God and prayer and things like that. Paul expects Christians to do all their dirty laundry within the church and not bring it to secular judges. Because what does it mean to a secular judge that he sees Christians in front of them fighting with each other? It's a terrible witness. But anyways, you didn't ask me about that. So um, what did you ask me about actually? The question was, if you know or hear or see of someone who calls themselves a Christian doing things that are sinful, would you or other church leaders confront that person? Yeah, Matthew 18 principle is very important to do. I'm glad I didn't go too far down the rabbit trail. It's discipline, okay. So Matthew 18, 
Because he, Matthew 18, when you bring the church in, it says once you do that, it says then whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what he's saying is if you loose that person from their sin, you forgive them, then they're forgiven in heaven. If you bind them, then they're bound in heaven to their sin. Their, their sin is not forgiven. But we are talking about tenses of verbs. And this might be the most important verse to understand tenses. Because it seems like in English it's saying whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As if heaven's waiting for your decision to decide what heaven's going to do with that person. No, the, the tense of the verb is saying that whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. So it's saying heaven's already determined if that person's forgiven or not because they know the person's heart. But how do we know if they should be forgiven or not? You do the Matthew 18 principle faithfully, the conclusions that that principle brings you to, Jesus is saying, will be the same conclusions heaven's already reached on them. So the discipline you either give or don't give to that person is exactly what heaven's doing with them. So it's the only way to match heaven is through that. And if I could take 30 seconds more of your time, I want to try to clear up a pet peeve that however many of you are watching right now, you can help overcome this uh, mistake that I hear so many times and it becomes a bit maddening because that's just my sinful nature. But you hear people pray all the time saying, Lord, thank you for being with us because where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are also. That is not the teaching of that. And it's horrible for people who are alone to hear that there's gotta be two or three for the Lord to be with them. The Lord is with every singular person who's praying in their closet all by themselves or for whoever's alone and lonely all the time. God is with them. It does not require two or three for the Lord to be with them. Jesus says, where two or three or more in my name, there I am in their midst. He's saying that in Matthew 18. He's saying, when you bring the two or three witnesses, then you can know that I'm there to properly guide the judgment on that person and their discipline. That if you loose them, it's because heaven loosed them. If you bind them, it's because heaven bound them, because I'm there with you in the process. So it's a church discipline, Matthew 18 verse. It is not a prayer verse. Um, how many widows or widowers went home broken because they just heard their pastor say, thank you, God, because there's two or three, you're here also. No, he's with everybody all the time. He's Emmanuel, God with each and every one of us. All right, I'm glad we got to say that. Uh, we have a question that is stemming from uh, earlier when you were talking about the Good Samaritan. What was the reason the Hebrews and the Jewish people uh, despised the Samaritans so much? Okay, so when Assyria captured the Israelites and brought them to captivity, um, God told uh, th they were to stay separate from them and only marry fellow Jews and so forth. And the ones that disobeyed that married Assyrians became the Samaritans. So Samar Samaritans are half Assyrian and half Jewish, and therefore the true Jews despised them for that violation, for that unfaithfulness. And um, so, so that's the, the origins of, of despising them was they were unfaithful in captivity and intermarried and became Samaritan instead of Jewish. Uh, here's a great question. If someone suffers with an addiction, can they still be a believer? Would the addiction be considered a continual sin if they are going to God for help with it? No, just how you ended that question, is the condition of heart that's telling where that person stands. If they're going to God with it, uh, then that's what's marking their position with God. Yes, they're addicted, and therefore addicts usually continue in the sin, 
but the reaction to it of wanting to be over it, wanting help, is the key. Um, hating the sin is a very Christian um, fruit, uh, is to hate sin. So if they're hating their sin and their addiction, they're struggling with that addiction, they want to be better for that, and certainly are, are praying to God over that and seeking out Christian help through that. I love our recovery ministries of the men and women that struggle in, in addiction. And um, so, but addiction, I think, is, is a great picture of what I was talking about earlier about you're a slave to something. Okay, so addicts become addicts because they offered their service to a drug or to alcohol, that they served that drug or alcohol until that sin became addictive. Now, addiction is the textbook definition of a loss of freedom, isn't it? The addict is not free to choose anymore. Their body will tell them that you're not choosing anymore. You will do the drug or you will take the drink. So it's a total loss of freedom. And, um, and why I mention that is because I mentioned the bait on the hook that Satan makes sin look so attractive for us. And as I teach high schoolers, and I see them get into drugs and alcohol and all of that. And you see it's all in the name of friendship. It's their friends that are inviting them in to the drugs and the alcohol. It's all in the name of fun. You know, going to have fun doing the drugs and alcohol. It's all a matter of being a part of the, the friendship group or being cool or whatever. It's all baited with, with tempting things for a teenager. And then in the name of, you know, I don't have to listen to my parents. I don't have to follow curfew. I'm going to do what I want. That's the autonomy so you see this autonomy that leads to addiction. You see this, this um, uh, attractiveness of fun and pleasure and independence and all this. And next thing you know, they're not having any fun. They are far from independent. Everything that that drug or alcohol promised them, the opposite is their reality now. And they are a bond servant to the drug or to the alcohol. And uh, it, it just shows me what a gifted liar Satan is. Everything that made them do it the first time and the second time and the third time were lies. There was all deceit. It was all disguises. And then uh, the one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy has them. And the fight out of that is a tremendous fight. It is a tremendous battle to free the addict. Um, their stories are incredible stories. Um, the most shocking stories I've heard come from the addiction groups. So, um, so the, the, the answer is... It's the heart of the addict, you know, the one that's crying out for help and wants help and doesn't not want to be an addict anymore. Then uh, that's not the continuous sin that uh, is damning evidence of their soul, but it's their desire to do better. That's the evidence of the fruit in their life. Uh, we have a, a question that was referencing something you said earlier in the QA session, I believe. It says, what scripture supports holding back the Lord's Supper? Paul, when he talks about in uh, Corinthians, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, um, he says to examine yourself uh, before you partake of it because you can eat and drink judgment on yourself. So if you're in unrepentant sin and the church is trying to discipline you and you're not receiving the correction that God has ordained from Hebrews chapter 12, then the church withholds that communion because they're saying you're not examining yourself. If you examined yourself, you'd re repent of this. And because you don't see what the church leadership sees, your shepherd sees, then it needs to be withheld for their own good because they will eat and drink judgment on themselves from the unexamined life that they're living. Uh, so they withhold communion. 
uh, for that reason. So although the scripture doesn't say withhold communion, it does say examine yourself and don't partake if, if uh, you're not, if you're, um, if you're, if I forget exactly what Paul says about if you're not in the faith or I don't know how he put it, but, um, uh, but you're not to partake of it in an unexamined way. So that I guess it's been determined that you're not examining your ways with the Lord if you're in unrepentant sin. So they withhold that from you, which again, could be for your own good. It's like God keeping Adam and Eve out of the garden after they sin. And it says specifically, so they don't eat of the tree of life and live forever. And that's not God being mad, saying, now I don't want you to eat of the tree of life and live forever because I'm mad at you for sinning. It's because if they eat of the tree of life in their sinful condition, then that's how they'll live forever as sinners apart from God. So out of grace, he prevents them from eating that tree. He puts that tree in heaven. And in Revelation, John sees it. He says, I saw the tree of life. And what are the words of the angel when he sees that tree? He says, come and eat freely. So then we'll be totally invited to eat of that tree again once we're in the glorified, non-sinful state. But out of mercy, he will not let you live forever apart from him. He wants to redeem you, including die for you. So he has Adam and Eve to die so that they could be risen again in the newness that they're supposed to be in all the time. I see that the same as withholding Lord's Supper. We don't want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself, so we withhold that uh, from you. A simple question here, but a great question. Just says, can unforgiveness be considered as a continual sin? Uh, I, I have to say yes, because um, we need to look at what the Bible says about forgiveness. Because when Jesus teaches the parable on forgiveness, he finishes that parable to me in a very shocking way where he says um, that those that are unforgiving, and if you want me to pull this up, it's either Matthew 18 or Matthew 20, um, he'll actually say, um, you're cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that always strikes me as, that's for not forgiving somebody? And you read the text and the answer is yes, that's for being unforgiving. Um, I see you guys flipping through pages now, so you wanna see this. And this let me save you texting or typing it into Mike and let me uh, address it right now. Cause it's a, it's a, it's, and it's from the words of it's the mouth of Jesus Christ. So we need to consider, is it Matthew 20 or 18? It is. Matthew 18, right back to Matthew 18. All right, so um, as he talks about forgiveness, and it, it's a simple parable of uh, a king wanted to get all the debt that was owed him, so he called in this man that owed him 10,000 talents. A talent's about a year's salary, so 10,000 talents just means unpayable debt. Can never ever be paid back. So he called this man that can't possibly pay him back. He says, pay me what you owe me. The man says, have patience with me and I'll try to pay you back. And the king had compassion on him and tore up the debt and says, you owe me nothing. We're even, you're free, you can go. And that man left with that massive amounts of forgiveness on him and met a man who only owed him 100 denarii, something that's very payable back. And the man asked for patience to pay him back. And the man said, no, threw him in the debtor's prison. And then when the people told the king about that, the king called them in and said, how could you receive so much forgiveness from me and then not, not be forgiving in just a little matter? And here's how it finishes. His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. 
And the idea is it's an unpayable debt. So he's never going to pay all that was due him. And so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And what will he also do to you? It says he'll throw you into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So forgiveness is a huge thing. Now I can tell you this, because I know some of you are going, I think I have unforgiveness towards somebody. I don't know that I could ever get to a point of forgiveness. Well, first of all, I will boldly say to you, yes, you can, uh, because you can't underestimate the grace of God in your life. He's gonna give you the grace to be able to do it because he wants to free you. You're the one that's bound by unforgiveness, by the way. Not the person you're not forgiving. You're bound. You're the one struggling and suffering because of unforgiveness. So I got a phone call a day or two ago from a girl that graduated in 2013. She lives in Manhattan now. She's a broker for Morgan Stanley. She's one of the most impressive students we had come through our school. And um, she um, came to me her senior year with this unbelievable statement of, I, because her father had so wounded her throughout her life, um, she came to me and said, I know I'm incapable of love. I will not be able to love anybody when I go to college. I know I'm a wreck. I know I'll sabotage relationships. And she literally said to me, you have to fix me before I graduate. I was like, all right. Well, after I talked with her for a little while and I realized how much of a problem she had in not forgiving her dad, um, I eventually had her write out because I saw how much hurt was in her. I said, next time you come to me, I want you to have a, written out a, a, a page, at least a page of a letter to your dad that you never have to send, but you need to express yourself on it. And I said, I want every sentence to start with the words, I hate you, dad, because. So she wrote out this whole thing and then she read it to me and she, and she cried after statement after statement of I hate you, dad, because and she read it, she cried so loud, like top of her lungs wailing, that I could not believe security didn't show up to see what was wrong. I couldn't believe nobody came in. It was embarrassingly loud sobbing, but she was getting all of that out of her. And when she got all of that out of her, uh, that summer she flew to Columbia where her dad was and met with her dad, which was, he was highly intimidating to her, but he met with her and said, dad, uh, I wanna tell you this, I completely forgive you of everything that you put me through, everything you put my brother through. I completely forgive you. I feel so much freedom right now. She says, I, 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 I see you now as somebody I need to pray for, not somebody I'm victimized by, and so I'm gonna be praying for you every day, and I just want you to know that. And she has been free as a bird since then. She went to Penn University, met a guy named Anthony. They've been dating for the last six years. She called me yesterday, the day before, to ask me to fly up to Pittsburgh and do her wedding. And she says, I'm asking you to do my wedding because you freed me so that I could actually love Anthony. I never would have been able to love Anthony without dealing with my dad and forgiving my dad. And it freed me up and now I'm in love and getting married and I want you to do the wedding. That's the power of forgiveness. That is the power of forgiveness. It freed her, okay? Didn't do much for her dad. He's still a mess and might not even come to the wedding actually. But it did everything for her, the one that didn't want to forgive. The one that at first felt like, I'm not gonna let him off the hook. Why would I let him off? I'm not asking you to let him off the hook. I'm asking you to let yourself off the hook. You gotta free yourself from this problem. And it did in a tremendous way. Uh, just always a pleasure uh, to see you guys. And I, from the bottom of my heart, I hope you're helped through these studies and um, that you just love the word and keep pursuing the word. To me, it's the answer to all the problems. 
I don't know of a problem that's outside the reach of the Word of God. And if you guys know the Word of God, then I just think you're going to help make the world literally a better place. I know I sound like Michael Jackson, but I mean it. <laughs>